Welcome to Slaking Thirst, a podcast that's all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, a divine heart who is seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts would meet and both thirsts would be slaked. Morning. Y'all notice those donut Sunday signs on the door? That's always a good sign. It's going to be a good Sunday. (laughs) All right. Solemnity of Christ the King, right? Every year, the liturgical year is brought to a close with this awesome solemnity. It's like Jesus, the last one, the high priest, comes at the end of the procession, at the end of this whole long liturgical year. Let's dive in. we got a lot to talk about. So I'm going to rewind the clock. We're going to hop in a time machine and go back to 1917. That's where I want to start this morning. 1917, the communist anti-Catholic Mexican president, Plutarco Elias Callez, he had enacted what were called the Callez Laws in Mexico in the Constitution, changing everything, setting off massive persecution throughout the entire nation. Catholic churches, Catholic schools, convents, pretty much anything that bore the name of Christ was uh, closed, burned down, shut down, destroyed. They estimate around 3,500 priests were either exiled or executed during this time period. Most Catholics, most Christians, most people don't know that all this occurred at the beginning of the 20th century. One of the most brutal persecutions of the church, less than about, about 100 years ago. One of the very first martyrs, martyrdoms ever caught on camera occurred during this regime. A guy named Father Miguel Pro. He's now Blessed Miguel Pro. He was a Jesuit priest who used to put on disguises and sneak himself into all sorts of government-controlled areas to bring Jesus to, uh, to Christians. Well, he's caught on film, stretching his arms out in the shape of a cross, crying out, Viva Cristo Rey, right before he was executed. First martyrdom ever caught on film. Caius's goal, this, this government's goal, was to utterly eliminate the Catholic Church's influence in Mexico, replacing everything with, like, a government secular-controlled, secular... Uh, secularly controlled regimes, secular education, secular hospitals, secular social social institutions, that just like every communist regime, Caius was intent on removing God from every corner, every facet of uh, life. Communism, socialism, these totalitarian regimes, these ideological regimes have one thing in common with Christianity— As one guard in the Soviet gulag said to a Christian dissident who he was torturing, he said, just like you, communism, we want the whole man. Communism wants the whole man. It's the diabolical attempt to create the anti-church, offering an anti-solution, an anti-salvation, an anti-gospel, a this-world solution to salvation. So in response to this, a rebellion began, an uprising of, of Christian citizens, men and women of every age. They were known as the Cristeros, and their battle cry, their rallying cry was, Viva Cristo Rey, long live Christ the King. Let me hear you try that. Viva Cristo Rey. Rey. Say it like you mean it. Viva there you go. Now you're awake. I love it. Maybe you just want donuts. I don't know. All right. So among the ranks of the Cristeros were both men and women, children, people of every age. And one of those Cristeros was a a young man named Jose Sanchez del Rio. He joined the rebellion in one decisive battle. The general's horse was shot. General fell to the ground. The horse was laying dead. And Jose hopped off his horse, gave his horse to the general. He said, you're more important than me. And he gave him his horse and he he got to preserve his life. But Jose was 
captured by the government soldiers, he was taken to uh, a church that had been transformed into a barracks, into a prison. In fact, it was the church where he was baptized. There he was questioned, he was interrogated, he was tortured ruthlessly. They kept saying, if you just say death to Christ the King, we'll let you go. In fact, it got so bad that they brought in Jose's own godfather, who became a sort of turncoat. He was cooperating with the government. He brought, they brought in his godfather to, say, to try and convince him, and he refused. Well, it finally came to a head where they tortured him pretty severely, and they determined he was going to be executed. They marched him through the city streets to the city cemetery where there was a pre-dug grave with his family there waiting for him. And they asked him over time, just say death to Christ the King. His godfather there, his mother there, his father there, just say death to Christ the King. And he said again, viva Cristo Rey. And they executed him and they kicked his body into the grave. Jose Sanchez del Rio was 14 years old. 14. Friends, Christ is king. Even though kingship is something that we don't live with in America, in fact, we've defined ourselves in contrast to kingship, the church insists that every year that we punctuate the liturgical year by looking at Jesus as hailing him, not just simply as Lord, not just simply as Savior, but as king and as king of the universe, right? Pilate questions Jesus, are you a king? And he puts the inscription above the cross, Jesus Nazarenus Rex Iudaiorum, Jesus of Nazareth, king of the Jews. But Pilate didn't go far enough, right? Because he's not just king of the Jews. He's not just king of this people or that people. He's not just king of this planet. He's king of the universe. He looks at every single thing he's made, right? Just like Mufasa with Simba, like you see everything the light touches. That is our kingdom. Every grain of matter, every atom, every molecule in the universe, everything, every soul, every person is under the lordship, under the kingship of Jesus. The gospel Every gospel, the gospel message, this notion of Christ's kingship is at the heart of the gospel proclamation. I know that we just heard Deacon Rich proclaim from the gospel of John, but the gospel of Mark, which is the first in the series of the gospels, right? Or it's the, it's the first in, in the his, historicity of the gospels, the first written. It starts off with Mark saying, the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And we hear those words as modern day Christians, we're like, okay, I don't, how else are you going to start a gospel? I don't know, that sounds about right, right? The gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. But we, what we don't realize is that those words were subversive words because at the time of Jesus, it was Caesar who was the the Son of God. Not anybody else. Caesar was the Son of God. And Caesar was the one who proclaimed euangelion, good news to the empire. And it was Caesar who, pro who proclaimed salvation through the Pax Romana. And here you've got Mark in the belly of the beast literally writing this the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This is where real power is. This is where real kingship is. This is where real authority is. This is where the real good news is. It has nothing to do with Caesar or any other earthly monarch or any other earthly authority. Jesus of Nazareth, crucified and risen. And the gospel that we have this weekend from John's gospel that we hear every Passion Good on every uh, Good Friday, we see our king on trial. Christ has two trials in the passion narrative. One religious and one political. Those are the two accusations. The first is he's dragged before Annas and Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. And the charge that was brought before him is that he's too religious. He's claiming to be the son of God. This is blasphemy. It was a charge of blasphemy. The second trial, he's hauled before Pilate because only the Romans could levy a 
a death sentence. So he's hauled before Pilate, and the, time, the charge this time was not that he's too religious, it's that he was too political. He's claiming to be king. He's claiming to be king. This is a danger to the state. He's making himself to be king, and the crowd, of course, shouts in response. When Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. See, the thing is, Pilate couldn't have cared less about a crazy Jewish prophet claiming to be God. But an outspoken religious leader with a big following who is claiming to be king, that was something he had to take very seriously. See, Pilate was the first, the classic political politician line when he washes his hands of Jesus' blood. I'm personally opposed to this man's blood, but let's have him crucified anyway. Pilate sought to get to the bottom of who this Jesus was. Who is this king? And ultimately, as we heard in the gospel, is he a threat? That's what he's trying to ascertain in this gospel. Is he a threat? And the answer, of course, is yes. Yes, he is a threat, but not in a way that Pilate could have imagined. See, Christ was not a threat because he had a bigger army, which he did, right? When he was born, right, we'll hear it at Christmas in a few weeks, when he's born, the angels appear in the heavens, and the word that Luke uses is a whole stratias of the heavenly host appears. That's where we get the word strategy or strategic. It means an army appears in the heaven. When the baby king is born, the angel army shows up. So yeah, he's got a bigger army, but that's not why he was a threat. Nor was he a threat because he had more influence, which he did. Nor was he a threat because he was wiser, which he was. Christ was a threat to Rome and to every other power and authority precisely because he's the king of truth. He says, I came to testify to the truth. I came to testify to the truth. It was for this reason I was sent into the world, to testify to the truth. Jesus Christ, him and his church, Jesus is not one who proclaims a truth. He's the one who proclaims the truth. This church of ours is the church that proclaims the truth about man, the truth about the human person, our dignity, our destiny, about what, it ultimate, what ultimate reality is all about. This is why back in 1978, John Paul II, right after he was elected pope, he, his first apostolic visit was back to his home country of Poland, still very much in the grip of communism. He comes to Poland and he gathers thousands, tens of thousands of folks, tens of thousands of Poles who have been under the grip, under the heel of communism. And he begins to preach to them. He, gin, he begins to preach to them about God reminding them of their worth, reminding them of who they are, reminding them of their dignity, reminding them of the great destiny that they have as human beings. He said to them, you are not who they say you are, as he points to the communists. You are not who they say you are. Let me remind you of who you are. And for over 45 minutes, the crowd is shouting, we want God, we want God. He told the truth and every careful observer of the day knew as they watched the commies shaken in their boots, they knew that it was over. Soon after that, the Eastern Bloc fell, right? Didn't mean the communism was gone, but it fell there. Friends, like, as Catholic Christians, we do not believe that our faith is one truth among many. We do not believe that all religions basically teach the same thing. We do not believe that they're all basically roads up the same mountain. 
That's a heresy called syncretism. That's not what we believe. Because what if it's the case that the God on the top of the mountain came down to the bottom and said, journey this way. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Follow me. We do not believe that we all teach essentially the same thing. I know that doesn't sound politically correct. It's not. But that's not why I was ordained. I wasn't ordained to preach political correctness to you. You know that by now, right? Yeah? All right. Friends, love and truth, love and truth, they go together. When love becomes divorced from the truth, when compassion is divorced from the truth, it becomes mere sentimentality, which is not love. That ends eventually in the gas chambers. That's not what Jesus calls us to. Love and truth, if it's going to be loving, it has to be connected to the truth. And Jesus Christ is the truth. He's not the king of opinion. He's the king of truth. He's the king of truths. And all the truths, all the truths that the church proclaims and teaches, there are not disparate, disconnected islands. It's not like this archipelago of teachings where you can say, I like this one and this one and this one, but I don't really like those ones. That's not how this works. The truth, because it's a person, it's an organic whole, it's a woven tapestry that if you pick up any part of the church's teaching, it's connected organically to everything else. You cannot reject one piece of it without rejecting all of it. That's like saying, I'll take Jesus' head, and I'll take his right arm, and his left big toe, but I don't want the rest of them. We can't dismember the truth. We don't have that luxury as Christians we cannot do that. In, in the church's teachings, especially her moral teachings, those doctrinal teachings about morality, about sexuality, about identity, about the human person, all those things, those hot-button issues that get people so riled up, especially in the moral teachings, the church speaks with the tone of a mother. Every no that the church offers, every no that the church says is a, a no that is protecting a greater yes. Everything the church says no to is, no, you shouldn't do that because we're mean and hateful and, and mean-spirited. No, the no's that the church proclaims are no that's not good for you. Like moms, dads, when your kids are about to stick the fork into the socket and you say, no, 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 don't do that. Are you being bigoted? Are you being closed-minded? Are you being loving? It's like when you buy a plant, right, from like a gardening store, and it comes with that card on it that tells you it needs this much sunlight, this much shade, that sort of thing, this much water, right? It kind of, the botanist goes through and tells you the very conditions that that plant needs to flourish. Are we just surrounded by closed-minded, bigoted botanists who don't want us to, like, I will water my plant how I want to water it. Don't you tell me how to water my plant. No, it's saying this is, if, if this thing would flourish, do this. The church's morality is what that is. It means that, like, I don't get to decide what things mean. I don't get to decide what things are. I don't get to decide how we get to flourish. It's given. I don't get to decide that, like, just because I run on coffee in the morning, that probably my car will as well. I don't get to decide that. That's already been decided for me. Truth has already been decided for us by the king of truth. I don't get to decide what marriage is or when life begins or what is the intrinsic value of the human person, where our dignity lies. I don't get to, de to, to determine for myself these realities. They're already given. They're already written into creation by the king of truth. This is the whole business of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. 
right? It was the divine prerogative to define these things, not our prerogative to determine them, right? We have to receive these realities from the Lord. This is why back in 1976, before John Paul II was John Paul II, he was still Karol Wojtyla, Cardinal Archbishop of Krakow. He came to the United States for our bicentennial celebration. And he made several speeches, but this one in Philadelphia is becoming more and more so prophetic for our day and age. John Paul II said this, or Carol Wojtyla, we are now standing in the face of the greatest historical confrontation humanity has gone through. This, by the way, is the man who lived through fascism, through the Nazis, lived through communism, and now he's saying in 76, we are now facing the greatest historical confrontation humanity has gone through. I do not think that wide circles of the American society or wide circles of the Christian community fully realize this. We are now facing the final confrontation between the church and the anti-church of the gospel versus the anti-gospel between Christ and the anti-Christ, between the word and the anti-word. It is a trial of not only our nation and the church, but in a sense, a test of 2,000 years of culture and Christian civilization with all of its consequences for human dignity, individual rights, human rights, and the rights of nations. The battle, he says, we are facing this confrontation between the church and the anti-church, the gospel and the anti-gospel, the Christ and the anti-Christ, the word and the anti-word, right? Friends, like truth, if, if, if Christ is the king of truth and truth is conveyed in language, right? Truth is conveyed in language, and language is a symbolic system that points to and enables us to engage and perceive reality. The battle is over symbols. It's over the language. The enemy is after the symbols. This is why he's attacking. This is why he's aiming all of his diabolical fury at the human person, at masculinity, at femininity, at the family. Sister Lucia, who is the visionary of Fatima, she said the final decisive battle will be between the enemy is going to be fighting over the family and marriage. The enemy is after the symbols because the symbols convey the truth. This is why the enemy, the serpent with his forked tongue, is splitting apart language. This is why back in, uh, when George Orwell wrote that book, 1984, he had this very, like, very prophetic vision of what would be happening today, this whole notion of news speak which is a big part of that book. This sort of government-sanctioned, um, propagandistic, euphemistic language that just twisted the meanings of words. This comes from, from Orwell's 1984. You with me this morning? You doing okay? All right, all right, I'm going to keep going. All right. Don't you see, he says in this book, don't you see that the whole aim of Newspeak is to narrow the range of thought? In the end, we shall make thought crime literally impossible because there will be no words in which to express it. Every concept that can be ever needed will be expressed by exactly one word with its meaning rigidly defined and, it, and all its subsidiary meanings rubbed out and forgotten. The process will still be continuing long after you and I are dead. Every year, fewer and fewer words and the range of consciousness always will be a little bit smaller. Even now, of course, there's no reason to or excuse for committing thought crime. It's merely a question of self-discipline, a question of reality control. But in the end, there won't be any need even for that. 
Like this right here, this is exactly what Carol Wojtyla, John Paul II, was getting at back in 76 when he was saying the enemy, right? The enemy is the anti-word, the anti-Christ. Christ is the word, the logos. Logos means word, meaning, rationality, purpose, ultimate truth behind everything. And if that's who he is, then the enemy is the anti-word, the anti-Christ, the anti-logos, who is the father of lies, as Jesus says, right? And the father, into the father's field of wheat, into this creation, the enemy is sowing these lies, splitting apart words. He's hijacking language. That's what's going on right now. That's what's going on right now. Words like marriage, family, justice, mother, father, brother, son, victim, these words that have a meaning are being hijacked. There is an enemy. And it's not those people, it's not that party, it's ideas. Our battles with principalities and powers, our battle is against the anti-word. And you and I, friends, we've been called by our baptism, we've been conscripted into this alliance, this allegiance of Christ the King of Truth. Friends, you and I, we were born for such a time as this. Because look, if the Lord wanted, or if the Lord felt that we needed today, if he thought that our culture needed today, like St. Dominic, to confront the issues, or if we needed a Francis of Assisi to confront these issues, or if we needed a St. Clair or a Joan of Arc or a John Vianney, if we needed them today, they would have been born today, but they're not, they're dead. You and I are here. You and I are the saints that the Lord has called into being now to confront these issues now, to claim our allegiance to the truth Friends, our truth, our faith is so beautiful because it radiates with the splendor of truth who is Christ. So on the solemnity of Christ the King, I want to challenge us, friends, to, as Alexander Solzhenitsyn said, that Soviet expatriate, that Soviet man who has uh, uh, suffered in the gulag, that we ought to live not by lies. We have to have the courage to speak truth in the littlest of moments, because if we don't have it in the littlest of moments, we won't have it when it really counts. To defend the truth, like always, 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 to refuse to live by lies. Look, we might have to live in a culture that is surrounded by lies, but that world of lies doesn't have to live in us, amen? It doesn't have to live in us. So on the solemnity of Christ the King, I want to challenge us. And if there are parts of the church's teaching that you've accepted and others that you've rejected, I want to challenge you on that this morning too. You cannot split apart the body of Christ. You cannot split him apart. He is singular. If that's you, if there's issues that you're struggling with, don't struggle alone. Don't just say, well, I've just decided I accept this and I've rejected this. Talk to me. Talk to Father Joe. Talk to Deacon Rich. Don't wrestle with a straw man. This faith of ours, friends, is so good and is so beautiful and is the only thing, it is the only hope the world has. And it's worth dying for. It's what Jose Sanchez del Rio saw in all those Cristeros. What did he see in Christ the King? What did he see? He saw the pearl of great price that was worth selling everything to obtain. He saw the, the, the treasure buried in the field that was worth selling everything to buy that field to get that treasure. The only reason to believe anything is if it's true. Friends, you and I, we are conscripted into this alliance, this allegiance of truth, of our King who is truth. As we consume truth today, as truth is put on our tongue, may we have fire in our bellies to be like lions, 
May we have fire in our bellies to be like the martyrs. May we have fire in our bellies to proclaim the truth to the world. Amen.